This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and members of parliament who don't see eye to eye. This week marks one month since the election, and we've got two special guests, two former members of parliament to talk us through what the first day of school is like, i.e. parliament, and some of the big issues Canada's 45th government is inheriting, especially with China and climate. We asked these two former MPs to come in to mark the first day of parliament, but surprise, the government delayed everything. We're going to get the new cabinet announcement on October 26th instead. The House of Commons sets to resume on November 22nd. So it's going to be a different conversation, a different kind of episode, but it's going to be fun because joining me today, former Liberal MP of Ottawa Centre, Catherine McKenna. Listeners may remember her as the Minister of Environment from 2015 to 2019, and then the Minister of Infrastructure from 2019 until, well, this year when she decided not to run again. She's not a backbencher, but I wanted to make an exception because the climate file is so important with the United Nations Climate Conference around the corner, or COP, and we're very happy to have her. Hi, Catherine. 
Great to join. I love uh, everything you do. So great to be here and great to be with Kenny. We've also got former conservative MP of BC's Steveston, Richmond East, Kenny Chu. You were an actual backbencher, which is exciting for us here at the backbench. You called yourself a pandemic MP being elected in 2019, shortly before the world shut down. Welcome. Hi, Fatima. Glad to be here. Hi, Catherine. Now, some listeners might give us a hard time that we only have liberal and conservative representation up here. Trust me, we tried to reach out to retiring and unseated MPs from all our other national federal parties, and they either declined, did not respond, or were unavailable. Either way, this is going to be a fantastic conversation. And I will declare this blanket statement. This is a no talking point zone. So y'all ready? Already. I have no more talking points. I'm not in government. (laughs) Absolutely. So let's get into this. I want to ask you both to look back at your tenure and your first day. Catherine, I know yours was in 2015 and Kenny, yours was in 2019. What were some preconceived notions you had about the federal government and whether your time in office, has that changed your view on it for better or worse? I think I came to Ottawa from BC with a, um, with a lot of expectation. The first one is government will, uh, will help us uh, get oriented and uh, the parliament will spare no expense to, in doing that. And I was right. The orientation, the onboarding, it's actually very good and comprehensively. Being a first term, uh, being somebody who who's not from any significant higher level government, I used to be a school board trustee, um, actually does help me get oriented to the complexity of uh, Ottawa and the House of Commons. So that I have to say, it's done very well. And now also I've I've uh, experienced the offboarding, and I have to say that they also have done a very good job in uh, in helping MP transitioning away from Ottawa as well. I didn't even know there was an offboarding process. That's fascinating. They're still after some assets of mine, which I need to hand over. I don't know, like my surface or something. I have to get into them. Well, I was going to ask, what does that include other than returning all your stuff that you may have taken from House of Commons? Uh, well, I mean, I think they also offer services to reintegrate to the real world um, because we're obviously in a in a very different space. But I mean, there's all sorts of things like it's your benefits, your pay, um, and and you know you're shutting down an office or offices. Um, so on the hill, but also your constituency office. So they help. Um, I didn't actually think about what happened once you got elected because I was just so focused on trying to get elected, and maybe Kenny was like that. And so suddenly you're like, okay all right, I'm elected now. What do I do? But then uh, I also was a minister. I was in a unique situation. Obviously, I was off to the the Paris Agreement negotiations like a few days after I was named to cabinet. So, I mean, I think Kenny's right. They helped. um, Parliament helped, although maybe it got better because I felt like it wasn't very practical. I was like, I don't know. How do you start three offices? What do you need? Did get some advice actually from colleagues. Your first and foremost responsibility is to your constituents. And that actually was probably the best advice I got. I mean, I did have to, I was, you know, traveling for the first few weeks because of uh, COP21. But I always tried to remember that, that I was first and foremost, the member of parliament for Ottawa Centre. Yeah, no, I I totally get uh, what Catherine was talking about. The other thing is with the dawn of social media and instant messaging and your uh, desire or maybe sometimes um, too much of it to make yourself available to be the local MP. You want to be able to be reachable by your constituents and all that. I remember my first uh, couple of weeks after I have my Ottawa office, I was sitting in there and start reading email and checking all the 
emails that that sent to my MP account until 2 a.m. Ottawa time. This is not kidding, because you see, especially for an MP from the West, Ottawa 2 a.m. It's only BC, you know, 11 o'clock. So you'll be busy answering the WhatsApp messages. Only 11 o'clock. <laughs> That's right. The WhatsApp messages and and the WeChat, the the Line. Uh, the Facebook messengers, the Twitter messages, and emails. And by the time you get to your P9, which is the the private MP email, you you have already gone through like several hours. And sometimes people feel free to call you because you told them. Uh, And they will be calling you from BC, uh, maybe 11.30 their time, which is 2.30 our time. So I remember that first couple of weeks, it's, uh, it's very harsh and very difficult. And uh, it's it's overwhelming. I do want to ask about a little more behind the scenes stuff. You know, we're getting a cabinet announcement on October 26th. Then we'll get a throne speech where we get ideas on what the goals are for this government. I wonder what happens after that. How do MPs, for example, pick what file they're going to be part of or what committee they're going to join or what issue they're going to speak on? I mean, it's obviously different when you're a minister because you're told. I mean, you're, you know, you're asked by, in my case, you know, the prime minister asked me, would I be the minister of environment and climate change? But I mean, I think, and Kennedy can talk about this. I mean, obviously the party leader uh, plays a significant role, but you can have your own causes. I don't know how the liberal does it, but the, the, and the conservative side, you know, we actually have a profile for each MP and what their interests are, what their life uh, life experience is, uh, what are their passion. And so for me, you know, there, there's also a survey that uh, that get passed along and asking what, what would you like to try first, second and third priority uh, in committee assignment. So I pretty much fill out what I wanted to do. And human rights is something that uh, I care deeply and also immigration. And so I was assigned to CIMM. Uh, the Committee on um, Immigration and Citizenship. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's 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 how we've done it. And later on, uh, about a year ago, um, I was asked to um, to take up a position in the Subcommittee of International Human Rights. So it's both what your passion is and also at the leadership office, in this case, my opposition leader's office, seeing that their needs are. What's interesting, you both touched on on this element where the party directs a little bit, if not a lot, about where you'll be in government. And and in the past few episodes, the backbench has been talking about, you know, the difference between voting for a party uh, versus voting for as a candidate, uh, as an individual MP. Uh, I wonder how much power did you both feel you had as an individual to shape the party agenda? And and, and what happens if you disagree with that party agenda? Well, maybe I'll start just because I've been on a bit of a rant on social media, or at least I had one Twitter rant because um, Andrew Coyne was, you know, he took aim at ministers in particular. Like, you don't do anything. PMO runs everything. You guys are just trophies, you know, regionally chosen, gender, you know, based on all these things. So, um, look, like I drove my agenda on climate. Um, and that was a pretty broad agenda. I mean, of course, I did have support um, from the prime minister's office. And it's kind of funny, like there's in some ways, like, maybe a bit of a misunderstanding amongst some people about how government like cabinet government works, right? Like, so a file comes. So let's take medical assistance and dying. Um, I'm not going to go into cabinet discussions because obviously um, they're confidential, but 
you know, everyone weighed in. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean when you, you know, you go shout from the rooftops and you've got a disagreement within cabinet. It is a team sport. Like if you had an issue, you're going to vote against the government's position on something that there would be a discussion. Is it sometimes difficult? And I'll be perfectly honest. Yes. Are there sometimes tensions with the prime minister's office or the house leader or the whip? Yes. But I think that that is normal, although sometimes I think that there needs to be recalibrations. Catherine, can I ask you what you meant by recalibrations? Well, I mean, I think sometimes, you know, there is a tendency, if you know, if you're in the center, probably to want everyone to just agree with everything you want to do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that ebbs and flows. Like, I, I mean, I think the prime minister in the prime minister's office was even kind of honest after 2019 you know, SNC and all those things, there was a need to do more engagement, you know, with cabinet to actually directly engage with cabinet ministers, but also with members of parliament, with your MPs. And I think that caucus is really important. And Kenny can talk about this too. Like caucus really matters. And the meetings we would have on Wednesdays, they would be very frank sometimes. And sometimes, you know, people would be angry. <laughs> Kenny, do you agree with Catherine? Like, is there a tension between party and individual that you have to kind of balance? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, in our democratic system, in our parliamentary democratic system in Canada, it's inevitable because, you know, people don't directly just vote for a prime minister. They vote for a prime minister through a party. And also, when you have such partisan politics, such as uh, what we've seen in Canada, it, it's unavoidable that uh, uh, a candidate represents both his personal um, passion, but at the same time, the the political party that he or she represents, except in the highly unusual situations, an independent uh, without a party support gets elected. And that's where I, I want to uh, segue into Jody Wilson-Raybould. Uh, I do agree with uh, Catherine about uh, partisan politics. Sometimes, you know, you have to you have to demonstrate the cabinet unity and all that. But at the same time, it's a matter of degree. What we have seen in Canadian politics, well, at least when I ran for office in 2017, 18, and then get elected in 19, there is just way too much on the government side. Um, of course, we, we, we know of uh, Leona Alexlav, who was elected in 2015 as a Liberal member. She could not stand with Justin Trudeau, so she crossed the floor from the government side to the opposition side as a backbencher MP. And then we also remember the SNC-Lavalin situation, the ethics law violations that the uh, ethics commissioner had had judged on uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Celine, Cecil Chavans, Jan Philpott, and, and then, of course, Jody Wilson-Raybould. These are the pre-2019 MPs who would like to speak their mind and on behalf of Canadians, but were suppressed. And in, in the case of Jody Wilson-Raybould, was actually punished. Uh, and so these are in indications that the, the Liberal Party has grown to a current state that, you know, there's just way too much circling the wagon and trying to protect uh, the leadership without giving enough voice, you know, just inside a caucus itself. 
Kenny, can you tell me what the Conservative Caucus is like then? Are you saying that the Conservative Caucus has a better system in, in terms of allowing individuals to speak? Well, I will be able to update you later on uh, in the next election or perhaps later that I rejoin a Conservative government. Uh, right now, we are in the opposition side. Catherine, I, I do want to mention, like, you know, in, in your answer, you did mention caucus a few times. And Kenny does bring up an interesting point. You know, have things changed since since... You know, that moment where those three women left caucus, uh, you know, declaring that uh, there wasn't room for individual voices at the table? I mean, I think there certainly was a recognition. So, I mean, I think, look, that's a very complex incident. And I didn't leave. I could have left. I didn't. Did you want to? Did you consider it at all? No. I mean, I think the prime minister's office and the prime minister recognized that there were, you know, there were challenges that you need to engage more directly with cabinet, with members individually um, with caucus um, directly and listen to folks because um, I think that was certainly feedback you know from from different from um, caucus and I, I assume cabinet members and and did they did they like did you did you see a boosted engagement after that uh, I did as a minister I did but I mean I think there's always <laughs> always a bit of a tendency to centralize and to want to have you know, it's obviously easier if people, you know, are, are you know, agreeing with everything you say. Um, so I think that's always going to be a tension. But, but I just say Kenny's point, like, okay, let's talk about the conservatives. Stephen Harper centralized control. He exercised a ton of control over his ministers. We all know that, right? And the same thing with his caucus. So I think that this is always going to be a challenge when you're in government. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, uh, you know, that there aren't different approaches, because I do think it is really important um, that the prime minister directly, not through other folks, but directly engage with the members of his team, cabinet, have conversations with them regularly uh, and also directly with caucus. I can't speak for how much the prime minister does that right now, um, but I do think it's important. Otherwise, you get disconnected. But the conservatives have a different problem right now. Um, it sounds great to allow everyone to have a voice and do whatever. Okay, so are all conservatives going to be vaccinated? Because they want, the conservatives have been very clear that they believe there should be no hybrid parliament. Everyone should be in the House of Commons. But you shouldn't have to be vaccinated. I think that is completely unreasonable. If I was the leader, I would say, too bad. Everyone has to be vaccinated because it's not just about you. Kenny, this is an interesting conversation that sets sort of the stage about lessons learned from the past that perhaps the new parliament can address and be better at. But but to Catherine's point, I guess, you know, for the Conservative Party, maybe there also needs to be a conversation about balance between leadership and, and, and caucus voices, but perhaps on the in the other way, like perhaps we need more directives from the leaders on things like vaccines so the entire caucus can be in line on certain important stuff? Well, certainly. I think how to balance freedom and also at the same time, one size fit all, doesn't matter on, on vaccine issues or other issues that represent the diverse opinions of Canadians. It's going to be continue. It's going to be there uh, with with Canadian politicians for for future. I mean, we're we're not completely immune to partisan politics, but at the same time, uh, the Conservative Party has been trying very hard to strike the balance. Take the example of uh, vaccination. You know, there are, there are Canadians who are not uh, vaccinated with, um, you know, measles or tetanus or, or whatever, some of these communicable uh, diseases that has a very effective 
uh, vaccines. And, and we believe in vaccines. I'm double dose vaccinated. But at the same time, for medical reasons, for other reasons, a lot of Canadians are hesitant in, in receiving vaccinations. It's so easy for government, uh, those who are, have power and say one size fit all, you have to do it. Otherwise, forget about it. You're excluded from, from the society. Do we want to even engage? Do we even allow the engagement and discussion and debate on, on these topics? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I do want to shift gears a little and focus on some election aftermath stuff that is still unfolding while I still have you both here so we can understand a little bit about what the new parliament is inheriting. So first, the future of and perhaps stability of the Conservative Party as it comes to China. Kenny, you made some noise recently about how Chinese Canadians were not effectively communicated with this election. You said that maybe in part it resulted in your loss on election night. There's been some interesting infighting that's been happening within conservatives over the last week on this. One complaint came from a Markham councillor, Joe Lee, a three-time former Tory candidate. He said that the Conservative Party suggested that he run again this time, but he declined saying, and I'm quoting, that I just don't see myself able to win with this anti-China policy. There was another uh, straight from a Conservative Party member, Bert Chen, who tried to trigger an early review of Aaron O'Toole's leadership. To be clear, Mr. Chen didn't say it was Mr. O'Toole's China stance that was irking him. He said that members felt that Mr. O'Toole betrayed the party's values when it came to spending and a consumer carbon price on fuel. Mr. Chen got suspended for 60 days for lodging this complaint. So, Kenny, I'm not trying to make this about how the family is fighting at the dinner table, so to speak, but I wonder what's your read on these recent events? Like, does the Conservative Party need to recalibrate, uh, to use Catherine's words, I guess, on the issue of China? I don't think so, because, you know, starting from even uh, earlier Conservative leader, uh, John Stephen Baker, when he introduced a bill, uh, the Bill of Rights, he already indicated that that the Conservative Party believes in the, the freedom and democracy that uh, we all enjoy, and we don't just keep it to ourselves, but we want to share this heritage to all humankind. We saw that uh, in, in Brian Maroney in the days when we don't just keep it to ourselves, but also share it with the situations for our objection with the anti-apartheid uh, situation in South Africa. We spoke up, even though we, at the time when we did, uh, we were the only country doing so. Catherine would, would be able to attest to the Jean Chrétien time, for example, uh, when Canada participated in the uh, Kosovo situations. And, you know, we continually, as a country, uh, we point out, we highlight the problems in the world. And are we not supposed to do that when it comes to the People's Republic of China uh, doing something that uh, that it's against uh, the Canadian values? We, you have to remember that this February, February 2021, February 22nd, I believe, when the House of Commons voted on what is happening to the uh, Uyghur Muslims and the Turkic Muslims in Xinjiang in China, you know, comply to the conditions set up in the United Nations 
definition of genocide. When we voted, it, it was nonpartisan. It was, it was actually cross-party. So this is not a conservative thing. This is actually something that uh, expressed by Canadian parliamentarian, the House of Commons, and it's reflective of also a tradition of conservatives. So I think I think the position-wise, there there's no problem. But is losing the pro-Chinese Communist Party, you know, Chinese Canadians vote part of the conservatives' political calculation? We know that during the election, not just in Steveston, Richmond East, but in GTA and also GVRD, uh, there have been uh, articles, analysis, and radio commentaries that are targeting the conservatives. But we don't know where these articles and talk show hosts get their information from. People can be manipulated. For example, my private member bill that has gone through first reading, uh, Bill C-282, you know, all you have to do is just click on a link and you will be able to see that China is not even mentioned there. But the circulation, the articles and the and the radio commentaries are saying that Kenny Chu is anti-Chinese. So, you know, there there are actors being played. And I can only tell you that prior to the election, that uh, CSIS and also um, other uh, intelligence and security agency responsible have table reports warning parliamentarian, our House of Commons, that foreign interference is real. And before the election, they have sat down and talked to me and during the election as well. And so mm-hmm. are we are we saying that uh, these these are situations that just generally uh, Canadian Chinese descent are feeling? No, I don't agree. I think there are situations, there are the conditions that are being manipulated, being labeled on targeting uh, against the, the conservatives in, in Canada. But of course, uh, you know, election win and election losses have many, many factors. And the candidate like myself have taken up uh, also significant uh, responsibility on that as well. Mm, I appreciate that. Catherine, after everything that's happened with the two Michaels and a decision to be expected soon on Huawei, what sort of consensus do you hope the government will achieve when it comes to our policy on China, if any? Uh, I mean, I don't know if you mean, do you mean consensus within the Liberal Party? Do you mean consensus like within the government? Within the government. Oh, within the government. I mean, look, I think that, well, maybe I'll make a general comment about China first. I've seen many governments, you know, whether it's liberal or conservatives, lurch on the issue of China. And it's a very normal thing. And in fact, I see like a government comes in and either seems to do one of two things. They're either pro-China or they're anti-China. They're either pro-trade or pro-human rights, and they come in with that one stance as if the other other side of things is never going to come to a head. I mean, I think that, I, I mean, maybe it's more nuanced than that, but that seems to be the challenge. The reality is China held hostage two Canadians for years as punishment, and that is a massive, obviously a massive, massive problem. I mean, I'll just say, like climate change, there is no solution without China. So, I mean, nothing is as easy to just, you know, often there can be a reaction. Okay, we're not going to engage with these countries or we're going to remove our embassies. I mean, we would probably wouldn't do that in the Chinese context now. But, you know, there's these easy solutions. Foreign policy is actually really hard. And sometimes it's very hard to have nuanced discussions in the House of Commons. And that's not just about China. That's about any country. But I think that Canada does really have to grapple with a China that is uh, very aggressive, that, I mean, we've seen in many cases trying to buy up Canadian companies and strategic industries. That's very big concern. And at the same time, we do need to engage with China if we really want to tackle climate change, because there is no solution without China. They're the biggest polluter. And at the same time, and maybe you're getting at this, like I also worry about anti-Chinese sentiment in Canada, which can actually target 
you know, Chinese Canadians that have nothing to do with how the Chinese regime acts. So, I mean, I think things are always more complicated. And I think, you know, in, in life, it's easy if you've got like, you know, your sound, your talking point or, you know, your unnuanced position. But I, that's not actually foreign policy. <laughs> look, I, I think everyone better have a we better have a really hard look about Canadian foreign policy uh, in a very different world. At the end of the day, what is politics about? Like, we can all pretend it's all about, you know, us MPs. I'm an MP and neither is Kenny anymore. But when you're there, you know, it's all about you. It's actually not. It's actually like, it's about our country. It was about like, what are we trying to build? And I think sometimes we all, all of us need to just like, when you're in parliament, you need to take a step back, take a chill pill and remember who we serve. You know, you, you mentioned climate and needing China to push that file forward. Uh, Canada is going into COP26 at the end of the month before the next parliamentary session even starts, I might add. Now, Catherine, I've listened to a lot of your media appearances and, and we've had conversations. I know you're very proud of the 2015 COP moment where you and the prime minister declared that Canada is back on the world stage when it comes to fighting for the climate file. But my question is, is Canada still there? Because a lot has happened in the last five years. Climate impacts are getting worse, from heat domes to Lytton burning down to First Nations communities forced to evacuate in northern Manitoba. Canadians' lives are still being appended, if more even, than the 2015 moment. And yet we seem to be handcuffed by a lack of political will. So how do we actually cross that divide to achieve progress on this file and still be back on the world stage uh, come November? Well, first of all, I mean, I I just want to say, like, in 2015, we had no climate plan, right? Like, we were, first of all, we were kind of prize on the international stage, I'll tell you that, because I showed up and they were like, oh, you guys believe in climate change and the science behind it and you want to take action. So, I mean, but that only gets you so far. So we had to have our climate plan. Um, we put a price on pollution. We had to fight an election. on. We had to go to the bloody Supreme Court on it. But Canadian supported parties that supported a price on pollution and the Conservatives actually in their plan. I don't know. There seems to be some toing and froing amongst the Conservative Party. But Aaron O'Toole put a, you know, I, I didn't think he had a very credible climate plan, but he actually put a price on pollution. So I think we've made a lot of progress. People keep on saying we're missing our targets. We have a 2030 target. It is not 2030. We have a plan that will take us to meet the original target that we set. And now we've created more ambition targets, but we've taken a whole range of measures from uh, a price on pollution to coal phase out, to phasing out the internal combustion engine by 2035. The thing that we need to do in Canada, and this is the real thing, actually the Globe and Mail was talking about this. I mean, we've got to grapple with, we've got to grapple with the oil and gas sector. Like that's what we have to do. And as part of the liberal platform, it said like those emissions are going to have to go down. Because right now, and you hear a lot about this from uh, Jason Kenney, sometimes from Scott Moe, the premier of Saskatchewan, they say, like, you know, we're all part of it, we're doing everything, or it doesn't matter, or whatever. Like, the reality is, um, we could plant every tree in Canada, we could retrofit every building, but right now, emissions from the oil and gas sector are rising. And I sometimes hear from folks, well, the emissions intensity of oil and gas is going down. I don't care about emissions intensity, no one should care. I mean, like, it's good that it's going down, but the reality is, It's just a binary thing. Your emissions either go up and down and the oil and gas sector, it's going up significantly. And two provinces are really the ones that are making it much harder for everyone else, including our federal climate plan, but for everyone else to seriously tackle climate change. So I think that it is very good that that the Liberal Party, like the Liberal government now has a plan to deal with the oil and gas sector. And I'm sure that will be supported 
by the NDP, um, by the Greens, by the Bloc. And so I think you will see progress in a key sector. And that's when we can be really credible. I want to put this question to Kenny because, you know, I, I know the Conservative Party line has always been that Canada is the best source of oil because we've got regulations and respect for human rights and whatnot. But recently we did get a report from the International Energy Agency that said that Canada's energy supply is in dire straits, that our supply will likely dip dramatically and that we need to invest in clean energy. We need to actually triple investments in clean energy considering this decline in oil. I just want to throw some numbers out there, you know, under existing climate policies, oil production in Canada will grow by about 700,000 barrels a day by 2030 before it starts to recede. And if we mandate more electric car sales and cap emissions from oil and gas production, as the Liberal Party has proposed, available Canadian oil will fall by 100,000 barrels a day by 2030. And if you add a net zero policy push on top of that, where any greenhouse gases still emitted are captured, then oil supply will fall even faster. Kenny, do you think the Conservatives are going to have to change their tune in light of this information from the IEA? Will they have a serious conversation with the oil and gas sector? Fatima, we we are a party of pragmatists. We are pragmatic in how we solve problems and propose solutions. And in the case of uh, climate change as well, I used to live in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and I live in Richmond, British Columbia, which arguably is a warmer corner of Canada. But my electric vehicle that I drive in the winter its performance, the battery performance, reduced by at least 25%, if not more. We are in a cold climate. We are a cold country. We need energy to survive. There are still 90% of the cars on the roads that are internal combustion engine. And where do you get the fuel from? Uh, is it better to import fuel from Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, Venezuela, and the United States of America better than Canadians? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't agree with that. And yes, it's good that we gradually wean ourselves off. But the, the conservative stand has been that this process has to be gradual enough. But Kenny, the IPCC report says that gradual is insufficient, right? And 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 then I'll get Catherine to respond to this after you, but Every single study that's been done about Canada's climate policy says that it's not sufficient enough, that it's not on track to, to you know, achieve the kind of change in the short amount of time that we have to achieve mitigation and adaptation because we can't even reverse impacts anymore, right? So uh, when you say gradual change, that goes against what the science and the data and all of that is saying. So is the Conservative Party having a conversation in that line? Listen, this is where I, I meant... The, the pragmatism that we have to engage ourselves is. The reality is that Canada, it's account for less than 2% of the, the carbon emission in the world. The reality is that we are a cold country. In, in British Columbia, in my home province, we have imposed carbon tax on our people, the British Columbians. But guess what? Our carbon emission has risen year by year That's by year. That's not true. Not true. So so what we what we are facing is what is the most effective way of addressing that issue without grinding to our economy to a halt. Canadians in British Columbia, the gasoline prices is at $1.60 plus right now. And comparing to what is in Ottawa, it's still much lower. And yet the Trudeau government, it's going to increase the carbon prices and increase the carbon tax on Canadians just continually. Is that going to help? There's so much misinformation. Like, I just have to correct some things. Like, I think, like, like can we just deal on facts? So first of all, the price on pollution, the majority of Canadians get more money back than they pay. 
It's actually raising Canadians out of poverty. So that's number one. The industry as well? No. For uh, fresh produce? Number two. No. Number two. Uh, we know in BC that actually the price on pollution uh, has actually had a positive impact um, and uh, it has reduced emissions. Three, we can't negotiate with science. Like, this is the Catherine, biggest thing that I think is Columbia, so the NDP bonkers. Like, carbon the planet tax, is heating up. Climate liberals. change is having an impact across the board. This is the fact. This is science. This is truth. You can't deny that. Right. But I'm just saying you said that it hasn't reduced emissions. It has reduced emissions, Kenny. It has reduced emissions. I just think the problem about putting out things that are wrong, then I just see it on social media, and then it just perpetuates myths. But the most important thing, you can't negotiate with science. It's not like gradually we can do things and it'll be okay. Like, it doesn't work like that. It's binary. I appreciate that. But Catherine, here's the thing, right? You both are unfortunately going back into talking points. And and I understand. I understand that there are different perspectives on climate and there are different approaches. Actually, there, and there are, are different facts thinking. and not facts. I think mine are actually There are, but I think points. the approaches to implement facts. those facts to policies are different based on just hearing you and Kenny talk about this, right? So my question to you both is what will it actually take to get you both or get both of your parties or both of your former parties to the table to negotiate a plan for the biggest crisis of our times. So Fatima, you know what I'm going to say to you? I tried. Guess what? I negotiated with provinces and territories. And by that, I mean that conservative premiers did not want to do a deal. Like I tried, but guess what? We had to go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, what? Pollution knows no boundaries. You came up with a reasonable approach to pricing. You gave people a choice between a carbon price, a direct price, and a cap and trade system with a minimum kind of standard. And you're allowed to then impose. And so I guess like maybe I'm just fed up and I'm fed up for my kids. I'm fed up for you. I'm fed up for Canadians because the reality is we're paying the price for climate change. And it's not a negotiation in the sense that parliamentarians got to sit around, end up in a middle ground, and then we're going to save the planet. Because we're not. We're not going to save the planet. So you know what? Sometimes the federal government has to act like the federal government and act on the biggest issue that we need to tackle. And that's the expectation I have globally. I expect that COP26, we're not just going to say, oh, well, it'd be good to get like kind of where everyone just meets in the middle. So folks who don't want to do anything on climate change, they don't have to do very much and everyone else has to come to them. No, that's like it just does not work like that. Kenny, like I appreciate that the Conservative Party wants to take a practical approach. I'm not like blind. And I also see that they cracked open a door with a climate policy. Right. But it isn't ambitious enough. And, 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 and a lot of conservative MPs don't fall in line with the science and the data. There is still, you know, doubt among voters about whether the conservatives could be able to tackle this climate change file and, and crisis. So, so you know, same question to you. What will it actually take to bring you and the Conservative Party to the table to have a serious conversation and hopefully an action plan to deal with this? Fatima, you know, I, I care about the planet. Guess what? It's the only planet that myself and my kids are going to inherit. There is no other alternative. That the the difference is that we look at we are looking at Canada. Uh, we have already come to terms that doesn't matter whether we depopulate Canada, we're not going to be able to save the world. There are only very little that we can do 
less than 2% it's our uh, carbon em emission. And I'm looking at the chart on the BC uh, website, BC government website, that greenhouse gas emission in British Columbia is 7.1% higher in 2018 comparing to the 2007 baseline year. But Kenny, are you saying that just because there's only very little we can do means we shouldn't do no, anything? No, we can definitely chew gum and walk at the same time. But at the same time, the solution does not stop within Canada. Right, but Canada has to do, do its part. Absolutely. Canada is actually among the top 10 we, emitters in the world. And historically, the amount of emissions we have contributed makes it even more incumbent on us to act. Per capita. Catherine, that is right. That is true. Okay, Kenny, what do we have to do? We have to incentivize Canadians to lower our carbon footprint. And how do we do that? Last election. That's what we propose. Instead of imposing carbon tax that has, in British Columbia at least, is demonstrated not being effective. That is not true. I have to correct facts. I have to correct I will go send to everyone. You can go see uh, Andrew Leach, Trevor Toome, a bunch of economists have all shown that it has reduced emissions. But look, I don't want to fight. There's one point I will concede to Kennedy because I think it's important. We have to care about people. And I realize that sometimes it sounds like if you know, you're know you focused on climate change, you're not worried about workers in Alberta uh, or in Saskatchewan or wherever in you know, Newfoundland working in the, in the oil and gas sector. I worry about them a lot. I used to stay up at night trying to figure out how to talk like a normal person, how to figure out a plan where we would support, we call it a just transition. I think that's terrible language. But ensure that you support workers and communities. I totally believe in that. But what I don't believe in is saying that we can find a middle ground or balanced approach. We're actually a really rich country. We actually have really smart people. We have the minerals of the economy of the future. We have to incentivize individual Canadians. But how? Can you give me a few details? Well, in the last election, we proposed one solution. That actually would, would ask Canadians to, to actually buy more green instead of the traditional energy inefficient appliances, for example. We would actually allow Canadians to bank on their uh, hard work and their sacrifices. And these are things that we, we can look into without jeopardizing our economy. And, and Catherine, you know, yes, we are, we are a rich country. That is true. But at the same time, every second when we are talking here, we're borrowing $50,000. We're overspending $50,000. This is a country that is incurring uh, a significant amount of debt. To what to get the, us the through the pandemic. Every penny that we borrow means that we are overspending. But Kenny, do you and the Conservative Party recognize that Canada has done damage? But we have been more damaging to the global climate and that we do have to correct that, if not just for our emissions, but for global emissions? Yes, we are contributing to the worsening of global climate change situations. That's why since 2008, we already started proposing areas where we could actually do it. Canadians can do it. And, and it's effective and it, it's going to be it's going to lower our, our individual carbon footprint. But instead, government impose on the easiest, which is carbon tax. You know, Catherine mentioned at the beginning that we have to have plans to tackle these, tackle that. But we are not doing enough. These are not effective plans. These are things that we have demonstrated. 2015 to 2019, it's a majority liberal government. Have we reduced our carbon footprint? Yeah, going into 2030, that's what our target is, and we have. 
Yeah. And guess what? Under the Harper government, nothing. That's right. I guess I guess we can talk about in, in 2029. Okay. I, I knew we were going to disagree on this episode, but I, I think we're going to leave it there. On the backbench, we have a rapid fire segment where we challenge our guests to give their thoughts on an issue in one sentence, 10 words, uh, if you can. So I'm going to do this uh, with you both and, and hope you guys can comply. So number one, the sexual harassment scandal in the Canadian military still persists. Just recently, eyewitnesses have now confirmed to Global News that Admiral Art McDonald, who was appointed for a month as chief of defense earlier this year, allegedly sexually assaulted a female naval officer. I've asked this before on the backbench, and I'll keep asking it. Catherine, what will it take for the government to make the Canadian military a safe space for everyone? Uh, Well, I mean, I think it's going to have to be, it's not going to happen overnight, that is for sure. Um, It's going to require, it looks like a full change in leadership in the the military. Uh, And, uh, you know, really looking under every stone, because it seems like I can't even believe every day there's a new story of some senior member of the brass, which taints everyone, sadly. And it's a huge morale issue. It's whether our military is even ready to fight. It's going to take a lot of work and someone waking up every single day and seeing that this for what it is, which is we've got to reboot the Canadian military. We've got to, you know, deal with all the uh, systemic issues and we have to rebuild confidence and morale because at the end of the day, the military is, is critically important to Canada's sovereignty. Kenny, new electoral boundaries have been drawn. Alberta gets three new ridings. Ontario and BC get a new one. Quebec loses one. Do you think it'll do anything to the balance of power in the House of Commons? I don't think so. I don't think so because the the eastern uh, the eastern Canada part, if you had uh, the Ontario and the uh, Quebec uh, seats together, plus also Atlantic provinces, uh, it, there has not been a significant sea change in that. And uh, BC and Alberta today are being seen as Western Canada, but in a matter of fact. BC behaves completely different uh, electorally uh, than than uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, or Manitoba. After his uh, TRC vacation day, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau seems to be in damage control. He finally visited Kamloops, BC this week. For both of you, in your opinion, um, briefly, what else needs to be done to fix Crown Indigenous relations? Catherine? I think we have to overthrow everything we do, like from the way we engage with uh, Indigenous peoples, um, you know, having a view that maybe it's going to be acrimonious to having them at the table of provincial and territorial meetings um, to uh, really, you know, listening to them uh, when it comes to what approaches they believe should be taken, whether it's from, you know, the, you know, how to address the fact that we have all these graves uh, of children from residential schools. And so, you know, I think a lot of good work has been done, but I think people are going to have to dig really, really deeply. And there's still just way more work that needs to be done. And I do think that systemic racism is a problem within uh, government, uh, including the federal government, but also the provinces. I think there has been way too much aspirations and platitudes. We need um, a leader that actually focus in doing things and repairing the relationship and rebuilding relationship rather than just all these um, nice words and uh, gestures, but but results. And um, I, I'm in the humble opinion that uh, Justin Trudeau, it's not that person. Uh, as we have seen uh, what happened during the very first Truth and Reconciliation Memorial Day, it's unfortunate, but uh, we need a leader 
that would actually deliver. Okay, and then final question, yes or no, uh, for both of you. Would either of you ever consider going back to politics? Catherine? Uh, I would only go back if we weren't serious about climate change. That is the issue that is most important to me. And Kenny? Yes, I will. On that note, we're going to adjourn. All righty. Thank you. (laughs) That's the Backbench. We're back to our regular programming, so we'll see you again in two weeks. We're so grateful you're still listening to us. We love to hear from you and hope we're helping you all have more fun conversations about Canadian politics. Send us your questions, your concerns, your rants. You can email us, backbench at canadaland.com. We're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. You can find my work at The Narwhal. Catherine, where can people find you? I'm sure they can certainly find me on Twitter. People find me there for good or for bad. People find find me there. And I do want to say, Kenny, that uh, I certainly respect you. I may not agree with a number of your views, but uh, I think it's good that people step up in politics. It's very important. Well, thank you. Kenny, where can people find you and follow your post-political life? Well, similarly, um, Twitter, it's probably the best way of doing it. I committed uh, you know, to... I, I committed too much uh, on accessibility at my <laughs> beginning of my term, but uh, people will be able to, you know, look me up and, uh, you know, look at uh, where I stand on on matters. And, and Catherine, uh, thank you. Appreciate, uh, you know, for your service to the country. And I know you, you do care about the planet. There are many people who do as well. Um, and I'm definitely one of them. Uh, we may not mm-hmm. see eye to eye on many of the policies, but in the end, we all believe in doing something better for the planet. Thank you. Hey, we ended on a great note. I love this. <laughs> Thank you, Bo. All right. High five, Padma. He did it. Thank you. <laughs> this episode was produced by Tiffany Lam with additional production by Tristan Capacchione. Our managing editor is Kieran Althorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.